Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Welcome to the Opera Box Score podcast for Monday, February 8th. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. Oh my, but do we have a show for you. Whether it's our live radio program or our studio podcast, we're America's weekly show about opera. Guess what? You get to have your say. Leave us a message on 224-2189-BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. Email us, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Tweet us at operaboxscore. We want you to be part of our conversation. Make that call. Send that email. Tweet that tweet. On this podcast, my co-host Oliver Camacho and I talk to soprano Emily Bersan, currently playing the role of Laretta in Puccini's Gianni Schicchi at Chicago Opera Theater. We get her interpretation of the production's 1960s-era update, and we hear insights into how to train the next wave of opera singers. Also, Oliver, Giovanna, and I all saw this production of Skiki and will review it in our extended Monday Evening Quarterback segment. Plus, we've got this week's opera headlines, as well as our TKO segment returns to pit two singers head-to-head in Offenbach's The Tales of Hoffman. Do not miss who we have chosen to fight to the death. Opera Box score is next. And sitting in the studio to my right is Oliver Macho Camacho. Hey, everybody. How are you? I'm great. You've been a busy bee the I'm, last couple yes, of days. and I'm just, I'm still coming off the high of having Matt Barese as our uh, guest host. He was and, wonderful. Yeah, and then seeing fun, Emily Birsan earlier today, and now we have Giovanna Jock back, so I'm just, <laughs> just so overstimulated right now. So, yeah. How's your tummy feeling, Giovanna? Did, were you, last week you were out. Okay, but... I was raising money, okay? <laughs> Not going to tell you how. But I was raising money. We thought you were so maybe at, at the Iowa caucuses, caucusing for Rubio. And tonight no. <laughs> is the New Hampshire primary. It's not a caucus, technically. Tomorrow so. is, a, is a primary, but last week was a caucus. So. I, this is, it's it's yeah. all very confusing. I know. If it's not opera, it doesn't you know, yes, understand no, it. No, <laughs> I follow. I get kind of obsessed by the election, That's actually. right. You do, I don't really you? really get obsessed. Okay. Anything that happens every, like, four years, like elections or the Olympics or the World Cup, I really start to get obsessed with and find it hard to put down. Uh, I am equally obsessed with Johnny Skiki, a show that I have directed twice before and so could not miss the production, which is currently at COT, Chicago Opera Theater, the second half of a double bill that also features La Voix Humaine uh, by Poulenc. Um, Poulenc. Poulenc. Thank you very much. Do I lose marks <laughs> for that? <laughs> um, but we should probably set up, first of all, you know what the first part of the bill, the uh, the Poulenc, kind of looked like and sounded like. I mean, I think the biggest attraction, first of all, is the woman who was singing the role of she. And yes. who was that, Giovanna? That was Patricia Raquette. Rosette. Rosette. Look at us. <laughs> all of us. I get to mark you down now. For yes, a, you do. Pronunciation. Yes, you do. Um. And I mean, she's a very famous singer, right? Yeah, she is. She's she's been at the Met, San Francisco Opera, Lyric before, um, Royal Opera House, La Scala, Paris Opera. She's been kind of everywhere. She is a big deal. I mean, she yeah. is one of the major American divas that sings, you know, full lyric roles. You know, she sang the Tosca for HD. Um, she sung Madame Butterfly at at, um, at the Met. I mean, she has been, gotten all the huge assignments. And uh, she did recently um, Salome 
at uh, Ravinia Festival, and I think in Milwaukee or someplace wow. in the Midwest, where she actually went for the whole, you know, the whole deal. You know, she took off all her yes, clothes did, during yeah. the dance at the and Seven Veils. And she was in the yeah, Pagliacci. Okay. I read last, about that. That's right. She was in the Pagliacci last year, where, um, you know, she had to learn how to do like vaudeville, like acting, like kind of like what's that guy's name? Fellini's wife's name. Uh, the famous oh. Italian clown, <laughs> like the Lucille Ball. Oliver's the looking yeah, at me, yeah. George, yeah. and I have absolutely yeah. no idea because I don't watch any movies. And uh, she also has like this fledgling pop career. Like she Juliette sings. Tomasina? There you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, where she sings, um, you know, like standards and stuff like that. So she's just like doing everything. And uh, yeah, she's definitely like seizing the moment with her career. So. And she's the only person in the show. It's a one woman show, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially about this woman who spends her time on the telephone in a lengthy breakup with uh, her partner. Mm-hmm. I assume it's a man. Yeah, I mean, does it say? The, I, I don't yeah, know. because she says "mon chéri," okay, which uh-huh. is yeah. which is the the ne- the not the negative, yeah. the masculine. But Oliver loses marks. But it for could that. no, but it could be also a very you know butch cis female. You know, maybe you'd say uh, "ma chérie" if it was a girl, though. I know, but if she's really butch, like you almost you know. There aren't really that many real butch French <laughs> lesbians. I find that, that hard to believe. Well, Patricia Rosette is famously a lesbian, so we could imagine that in her brain. It's a good point, Oliver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in terms, famous lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the design, um, the, to create the scene for the listeners, it was essentially. Uh, the room in an apartment or a loft. There yeah. was a back yeah. wall or like that. Yeah. that was yeah. projected. She had her suitcases out. So. Right, she had her suitcases, so it really wasn't her yeah. house necessarily. Yeah. Um, I felt like she was traveling. I felt like she was an opera singer on, you know, doing a job. And yeah. Like, you know. I and wonder where she was because the view from the window was not Paris no, and the original. City, it was like some yeah, city like, in the you know post-industrial age. Yeah, yeah, very industrial. You had the water citern or however you call that, the the... That water a, tank, a water tank, yeah. tower, yeah. And that skyline was done by uh, projection, so yeah. the back wall behind her. Okay, was let's just, just describe the, the the scenery because they actually used essentially the same scene idea for both. Yeah, for both shows. So there was a bed that was elevated so that you could see, yes. obviously, mm-hmm. a uh, chair, a uh, vanity, yeah, and a drink bar. But what do you call this thing? This like backdrop that kind of shrunk the stage. I don't know what you call that piece. Uh, it's like a, a scrim or a okay. dr- or a drop. So uh, made let's, of canvas. Let's say that um, the proscenium of COT is 1,000 square feet. I don't know if it is, you know. Mm-hmm. But the scrim is maybe one-third of that size. You know? Quite mm-hmm. small. Very yeah. small stage. So it shrinks the stage. It doesn't use, you know, really any, any uh, space on top. And it also is so small that you can see the sight lines. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can also see they had exposed lighting, you know, which I know they could have hidden that, you know, but they... Sure. they deliberately wanted you to see the You could lighting, see you the know? entire mechanics of everything. Yeah. You could yeah. see into the wings yeah. from the second row where I was sitting holding Javana's hand. <laughs> uh, you could, I mean, you could see right into the wings, yeah. right? You could Absolutely. see stage hands. You could see all the exposed, mm-hmm. um, the rail, which is yeah. with the piece of machinery that sort of raises and lowers different drops yeah. into the air. Uh, you, all the lighting was exposed. So this was a choice. So I, I don't know what that choice necessarily means because mm-hmm. then you can't really... For me, you can't really totally fall into the story yeah. because you always know that you're watching a piece of theater. Well, it's alienating, but it's only alienating in the sense that it reminds you that it is that you are in a theater. And I, I personally don't see the connection between that idea and the drama of the actual story itself. Uh, I understand 
first of all, fiscally, why you do that is because actually you don't have to pay to cut up all that stuff. You don't have to pay to create a little hotel room or apartment or whatever it is. You can leave it all exposed. But thematically, I'm not sure of the connection between all the exposed machinery of the theater and one woman's existential conflict. Maybe it was a very deep philosophical question, which would be very French of, you know, if if the stage is exposed, it represents how exposed she is, how vulnerable she is, and how open to the public her emotions are. Because she's extremely, extremely sensitive in this moment. I mean, it's it's an incredible commentary, and I know we'll get into the story in a little bit, but I, I can see how that that sideline and all the lights and being able to see the mechanics kind of the dirty work of the Mm -hmm. show is being able to see kind of the dirty work of a human well talk us through the story because it was sung in french obviously by a french composer Giovanna, you're our resident (laughs) french speaker i mean give us just the 30 second recap of the plot so basically this is a woman um the the script is the uh libretto is written by jean cocteau famous famous writer um and it's a woman who's trying to get in contact with her significant other, be that a man or a woman. And she's talking through it. You you know, she keeps getting disconnected. At the time when the story was set, it you used the telephone, uh, you know, communicators, those women who kind of plugged it in. I say women because the I operators. assume most, yeah, the operators. Yeah. Thank you. And so she g- keeps getting cut off. And there's this big stress every time she gets cut off. She's not going to be able to finish her thought that she's not going to be able to finish talking to this person and she puts on a front you know at the beginning that she's fine and that everything's great and that oh she just walked home from a friend a friend's dinner um and then little by little she exposes herself as as the stress kind of wears on her on her mindset and you understand that no she didn't go out and in fact the night before she took several sleeping pills and the doctor was there and you know she's she's wanting to take those pills again she's severely depressed basically yeah, and like that little stuff with the uh, interruptions is really the only like audience that she has. Yes. Besides the guy she's talking or the woman she's talking to, like this opera otherwise is very it would be a person all by themselves, and that actually might be less interesting. But mm-hmm. just like the threat that somebody might be listening to your conversation, so yeah. you're ever so slightly careful, you know, adds some tension yes. to, to the conversation. You know? Oliver, talk us through the musical landscape of the opera. It's tonal, would you yeah. say? Yeah, I mean. Poulenc has this really funny way of expressing harmonies uh, that's very infuriating for, um, you know, people who are learning how to <laughs> read music. Like he, like, like, let's say he wants to express a certain key, but rather than like just spell it out, he gives you all these enharmonic spellings. So you have to really think. And it's sort of, you, it sort of makes you lose your, um, as a musician, it makes you lose the center a little bit. It makes you... Just like, okay, just give it, give into it, you know, like it's not stable. And in a very French, I mean, French music in general is sort of against, you know, big downbeats and big cadences. Like there's a softness where there should be a masculine ending. There's usually a very feminine ending. And so it's hard to say where one thing begins and one thing ends. And it's just all about nuance, which is really a great way to express a French language. I mean, French opera evolved out of, you know, composers like, you know, Berlioz and Gluck who are trying to figure out how to make French music different than Italian music and German music, you know, and mm-hmm. it has to do with how the language is expressed. And Poulenc definitely takes that to an extreme, and it's not atonal. Like you said, you still hear melody, you hear lyricism, um, but it definitely feels uh, 
like continuous, you know, it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like things stop and start. Like you never get, oh, this is the big aria or this is the big, this is the tune, you know. But of course, there are beautiful swooping melodies, you know, but it's it doesn't feel um, like it's organized in a way. It's mm-hmm. like, it's just kind of amoebas, you know. And uh, that's how life is. Like life doesn't have these very, you know, okay, for three minutes, we're going to talk about this one thing. And it's a three minute conversation. No, like we had, like we're about to have with Emily, that conversation kind of goes into one place, it goes into another. And that's, that's how we talk, you know, and that's how the music is. Let's mm-hmm. get to the grades then. So Patricia Reset, Giovanna, what are you going to give her for this performance? Oh man, with only two French mistakes in the entire <laughs> hour long show, I'm going to go ahead and give her an A minus because her, her pronunciation was spot on, but there were two huge mistakes. And okay. I was just like, really, really? Mm-hmm. Do you want to point those out so maybe she listens? Yeah, she said... No, okay, let's not. Oliver, how about you? Give us a grade for uh, Patty. Uh, (laughs) um, I'm going to give her the full full marks. I mean, this is an opera that is really hard to put on, and it's hard to learn for that matter. Mm -hmm. And so kudos to her for, you know, taking it on with her full schedule and coming to Chicago, you know, to try it out for the first time, I assume, you know, and it's going to get better for her, you know, but it's, it's a big sing, you know, and, um, it does require a lot of, uh, vulnerability and nuance. And one might say that she's not necessarily the type of singer you'd expect to, to do this piece. Cause it's more of like a, a Kunst, you know, Kunst diva piece than a Stim diva piece, you mm-hmm. know, right. And she's going full Kunst here, you know, so I'm going to give was, her an A as well for yeah. that. Yeah. I heard the the mispronunciations too, at I least what I think they were. <laughs> um, but I mean, sitting in the second row, it's amazing how much she uses not just her face, but her body. Yes. I mean, your body is the most expressive part of yourself on mm. stage, you know, for the folks sitting way back. They can't yeah. see your face. They it's can so only natural. see your body. The uh, production of Johnny Skiki after the intermission uh, had been reset to the period of the 1960s. Uh, it was a little unclear if it was in a specific year or not. It was really more about the vibe of the 60s. Austin Powers is the easiest way to describe it. Yeah, that's it was. E- that's yeah. exactly right. Uh, the spy who shagged me for yeah. sure. <laughs> the, uh, the design, if we start there, was extremely colorful, of mm-hmm. course. That back wall that had been for the Poulenc was still in place. That was used to pres- project rather sort of psychedelic mm-hmm. patterns and colors on that. The cast were... Which were sometimes nauseating, I'm going to confess. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're dressed to the nines. Everything from go go boots to hippies to fat ties to everything yeah, fringe, in between you know yeah. yeah and then the set itself was the same uh ground plan as yeah. that of um love what you meant a little more so, furniture yeah a little, that's like, right got rid of the vanity and added some like uh, table those, like, and chairs everything was like all plastic or melanin mm-hmm. you know like various 60s you know like one piece no metal you know mm-hmm. and a Every- chandelier yeah, oh, from my, clearly little... from Ikea. Yeah, yeah. I've, I think I've, like, I have that same one somewhere. Having said all that, then, the question becomes for me, which is why? Why was this piece, Johnny's Geeky, reset into the period of the 1960s? And what is it about that era that connects us to the thematic material of Puccini's opera? Well, I've been trying to think about this for a long time, and, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until just Giovanna talked about the set design that I realized, oh, they are, you know, they are creating this bed, which is where somebody's going to die or somebody has died, you know? So that is like the touchstone that's like from the intermission. It's like, okay, we now know that she's probably going to overdose or something like that, you know? 
And then the next in the next scene, we have this guy who's actually already dead in this bed, you know. So that mm-hmm. was a thing that, you know, where the two operas touch in a way. Mm-hmm. And then they also are in a way opposite images of each other because the Poulenc is so austere and the uh, Puccini is so rich, you know, and there's so many people on the stage and it's almost it hurts your eyes. So many people and you can't even follow what's going on. Whereas in the Poulenc, you can only follow one thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And then even with the projections, it's like where the, the moon is the only thing being projected. In the Puccini, it's the opposite. You have so many of these random, kaleidoscopic, colorful, Brady Bunch things happening in the background, which hurt your eyes. You almost want to like, look away. The know? contrast is huge between loud and soft, visually loud and soft, musically, yeah. the number of people on stage. Giovanna, what's your take on why that era was chosen and what that era was supposed to mean, you know, thematically about the opera Johnny Skiki. You know, after the opera, we we briefly touched on this and I have been racking my brain for the past two days whenever we saw it Saturday night. I cannot understand why they did it in English. Oh, I can. Why? I think they probably wanted to do Love What You Men in English too, but maybe Patricia Reset just put her foot down. It's like, no, I'm not learning this thing. Why though? It was, it was... Okay, I... Tell so, me why. No, I'm, I'm actually interested okay, in, in understanding why. I think that Andreas Mitasek is really into, um, you know, English language pieces. Okay. Uh, he did the clever one in English. And, and, and Emperor Atlantis, was that in English too? I forget. Like It was. Okay. They're both originally in German, of yeah. course. So when you say he's into English language pieces, you mean yeah. like... Pres- he's good translations, pres- yeah. Trans- yeah, making yeah. it more accessible for the audience, mm-hmm. you know. Um. And especially in comedy, I think that timing is really important. And you don't always get the jokes when they're in a foreign language. You're relying on the super, super titles, you know. Mm-hmm. So you were not relying on the super titles from where you were sitting about one third of the way back. Yeah, I was in the perfect seat. I read the super titles. But once you got the gist of what was being said, then you could follow the language. It's, you know, it's, it's opera singers. Not everybody's got great diction. I, um, I'll say, though, I didn't look at the super titles once during The Voyeur Men, and I spent the entire time with yeah. my head up looking at them for Johnny Skiki. Okay. And, and I think, you know, you mentioned this. Yeah. George and I were sitting in the second row, yeah. like smack dab in the center of the second row. And I so wish that I could have seen Johnny Skiki from further back yeah. because I, I really think I'm, I have a completely oh, it hindered. Really, it was really broad. Yeah, definitely. What yeah. Doing physically was really, really broad. So. Yeah. And You're telling me. I mean, in the second yeah. row, it's very broad. I would definitely love to have that chance back to yeah. not be sitting so close. For the Patricia Reset, it was uh, critical right. yeah. to it be was right amazing. there because I wanted yeah. to see every single hair on yeah. her body. For Johnny Skiki, a little farther back much, to see yeah. all that color, that would have been a better. Yeah, so I don't feel like I can give an actual honest opinion because of that. Aww. Like, I mean, I have my opinions, yeah. but I'm sure okay. they so can be I've debuted. seen Johnny Skiki, I don't know, maybe three times. And I have to say, I laughed harder this, than I've ever had in this production because now that I'm not following the music, I'm actually following the text. I got a lot of the jokes I never got before mm-hmm. that are clearly in the score. It's not like, you know, Andres Mitasek, you know, added jokes. They've always been there, like the stuff with Adil Florence and stuff like that, you know, that's always been there. And now I'm not listening for that like, motif. I'm actually hearing the words and okay. it, it's funny, you know. And also the, you know, we were talking about this with Emily, the famous aria Omio Babino Caro, mm-hmm. which, you know, if you're a voice major, you've heard it. A million times. Yeah. Sure. I and feel like even got, if you're a muggle, you've heard it a million yeah, times. And you, and you just, it kind of loses its potency. And it is an aria that, um, you know, stops the show because of how beautiful the melody is. Mm-hmm. But it's actually a hilarious aria. And like hearing it in English really, you know, underscores the comedy of the moment, you know? Yeah. No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, 
I always am wary of opera productions that transplant the piece into a very concrete period of time because it starts to become a numbers game where like A equals B and where this thing from the original now becomes this other thing. And it's it's almost overly concrete and it's overly specific. Uh where I do think it was successful was in that place of contrast, right? Where the palette of mm-hmm. the La Voix Humaine was black, white, and red, which are kind of Andreas Medesek's signature colors. Yeah, you saw those noir, yeah. you mm-hmm. saw those colors yeah. in his productions of Lucio Silla, um, yeah. of Lucio Silla, Di Kluga, the clever one, yeah. Kaiser von Atlantis, yeah. all that. And then that cleverly allowed him, as you said, Oliver, to have some real contrast visually doing the the Johnny Skiki. Beyond that, though, I still don't see the connection thematically between the period and the piece Mm -hmm. itself. The show uh, has one more performance. It's on Sunday afternoon. I'm just going to say, before we get off this topic, props to Michael Michael Kildi, who plays the role of Johnny Skiki. Yeah, Hilarious. he was hilarious. He just sang Scarpia at um, New York City Opera, and he has a huge career. It's not just those things, but I mean, he was a real coup for this company to bring in and to do this major role and to nail it. I mean, like he was so convincing. So, give us your grade, Oliver, overall for the uh, Puccini. A. Mm-hmm. I really liked it, and I, you know me, I'm actually pretty hard on COT. This is one of my favorite things I've seen at COT. It's great, Giovanni. You going to dish out the top grade here too? No, um, and and that's only you know. Whoever's listening, take into account that I was in the second row. I'm going to give it a C. I really, I, I, I didn't enjoy gotcha. it. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go right down the middle with a B. <laughs> uh, I thought average grade B. Yeah, that's it's good, solid grade. I mean, I've, I'll tell you, I've seen worse productions. That is for sure. Uh, I thought the singing was great. I thought some mm-hmm. of the ideas Absolutely. were great. Uh, and it, it left me, it left me thinking, um, but questioning as well. This just in. The two-minute drill. Soprano Renee Fleming has announced her retirement. I've done a great deal of singing over my career, she said in an interview with the London Telegraph, and I don't want anyone saying that I sang such and such a thing better five years ago. So I've decided that Rose and Cavalier at Covent Garden and the Met next season will be my last mainstream opera appearances. Fleming was referring to Richard Strauss's opera, which has become something of a signature role for her. The stage was being set to announce the retirement of James Levine, the music director of the Metropolitan Opera since 1976, after his long-standing health woes seemed to worsen this season to the point that singers and musicians were having difficulty following his conducting. But then, Mr. Levine and Peter Gelb, the Met's general manager, paid a visit last week to his neurologist for an update on his condition. And the doctor gave Mr. Levine an 11th hour reprieve, saying that Mr. Levine's most serious problems could probably be solved by adjusting the dosage of a medication that he has been taking for Parkinson's disease. In Klagenfurt, Germany, the opening night of a new production of Puccini's Madame Butterfly was abandoned at the end of the famous aria Un Baldi as the result of a bomb threat. The theater was evacuated and the show was called off. The threat was later discovered to be a hoax, and this comes on the heels of a similar bomb threat made at the Sydney Opera House last month. This past weekend's reopening of the Tbilisi Neo-Moorish Opera House after a six-year intermission ranks as the country of Georgia's cultural event of the year. 
but it also has provided a stage for a dispute over whether the country is reviving the elitism of the Soviet past. Though a state-run facility, the theater's January 30th red carpet opening was invitation only. Decked out in their finest threads, most notably fur coats, the carefully selected invitees featured senior government officials, Georgian Orthodox Church dignitaries, and business leaders. The temperature that night was a balmy 46 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's the two-minute drill. TKO on the OBS. All right, TKO, Technical Knockout, is back on our podcast now. Uh, Just for you folks listening, our live radio show is every other Monday at 9 p.m. Central on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago. And you can also stream it live, wnur.org slash pop up. On the alternate Mondays, we do this podcast, and it gives us the chance to have a little more production involved, some more sound clips, some more sound effects, and of course to do TKO, where we pit two opera singers head-to-head in the same role, and we pick a winner, because America likes winners, and we're about sports. Exactly. Who wants to be in second place? (laughs) (laughs) Who do we got tonight, Oliver? Well, this time around, we're going to do Jacques Offenbach's Tales of Hoffmann, uh, which is uh, Offenbach's only attempt uh, to write a grand opera. Uh, The influences are very clear in his compositional style, uh, he is known for his French operetta, for his comic stuff. So there's plenty of couplet and, you know, tunes to hum. But uh, it is all commingled with more sublime and noble melodies, uh, which remind us of Gluck and even Mozart, and which he's even referenced in this opera. And then uh, the real surprise is how he's able to interpolate uh, the Italian bel canto style, which he uses quite liberally uh, in this show whenever the title character Hoffman gets kind of like the sexual urge. Uh, In Tales of Hoffman, we have three of the most difficult roles uh, in the entire opera canon. Uh, And one of these roles, which is that of Hoffman's girlfriends, the four lovers, uh, that role is so difficult that more often than not, it is actually split amongst four different singers. Uh, Hoffman himself is an encyclopedic role and undergoes such a journey that it would not be unreasonable to have four different singers uh, to take each of the acts. A lyric tenor who is uh, essaying Hoffman uh, is sort of like a rite of passage. Uh, This role demands the full spectrum of tone qualities from youthful and ardent in the first and second acts to that of a cynical alcoholic, uh, a masochist, even a murderer in the third act and prologue. Uh, For a lyric tenor who is likely graduating from Mozart and bel canto roles, uh, Hoffman will require his most dramatic singing in the same way that the role of Alfredo uh, stretches in the famous gambling scene of Traviata or when Edgardo uh, curses Lucia and Lucia de Lamamor. All right, so we're doing something a little bit different this time. Uh, I'm going to go with who I think is the best Hoffman, uh, which is Placido Domingo, who's been singing this role since he was like 30 years old. Uh, he recorded it uh, early in his career with Richard Bonning, and then he recorded it again in the late 80s with Seiji Ozawa, and he sang it for decades. And he really has been known to be the Hoffman par excellence. What about you, 
George. I'm putting Rolando Villazon into the ring. He is a tenor from Mexico, although he lives in France now. Uh, and I'm going to say that although he is a fantastic singer, he has been injured before, if we're going to run with the sports <laughs> metaphor. Uh, it was in 2007 that he canceled a lot of his engagements to deal with a persistent vocal issue. And he came back in 2009 only to have the same problem come up. And it was when I was observing rehearsals at the Met that I got to meet Rolando Villazon. He was doing a production of Lucia de la Mamor. He was singing Edgardo. And I remember the night when he was singing, when his voice in a performance just popped or cracked, or I've never heard any sound like that. And about 3,000 people all went, <gasps> yeah. and realized no. His what vocal happened. meltdowns uh, are becoming stuff of legend. And so he's injured, but he's back. Yeah, well, he's always coming back. And here's the thing I have to say. He is a Domingo sound-alike. And when he came onto the scene, everybody was comparing him to Domingo. And some people say that he was a, taking on the more Spinto uh, roles way too early in his career. Um, I am a big fan of Viazone because he's such he's so great on stage. He's a real comedian. It seems like he's even had clowns. And training. off stage he's kind of a comedian yeah. too. I mean he's something of a philosopher. He's a huge fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers and would wear like Steelers <laughs> gear to rehearsal. He's a great guy. So what's the first round? All right, let's be? do the first round here. The first test for Hoffman comes almost immediately in the opera's prologue. Uh, Hoffman finds himself in a tavern during the intermission of Don Giovanni. And he's clearly about to get drunk rather than go back into the theater. His buddies in the bar ask him to tell one of his stories, the tale of a deformed dwarf named Kleinsock. In the middle of the story, he suddenly loses his concentration and begins to fantasize about his current infatuation, the soprano Stella, who's singing the role of Donna Anna. This aria, which starts off as a crude, strophic song, takes flight and becomes a romantic-era aria in the vein of Massenet's Verter or De Grieux, uh, but to be sung as if already drunk. Uh, the tenor can be sloppy here as long as he can continue to pour out tone and give everything the voice has to offer. This can be a really piggish aria uh, right at the beginning of the opera. Let's hear round one. Okay, and who's going to go first? Uh, we'll start with Domingo, I think. <laughs> Wait a second. No, no, we're starting with, with uh, Rio Zone, Via Zone from the 2010 uh, British Classical Awards. Je la Don't 
So we're doing something different this time around. We're letting Giovanna be the referee. Yes. I I curated the clips and I try to keep it fair. So in 2010, Via Zone was 38. And in 1973, we just heard Domingo was 32 in their 30s. I mean, it would be nice to have heard Via Zone a little bit younger. Uh, But they're both live performances, obviously. And um, Domingo's audience did not uh, bother to hold their applause, even though the aria continues after that. (laughs) (laughs) Oliver, let's hear you go first. Well, you know, Sway me. Um, you know, I was actually really surprised at the Via Zone and how how good it was. And the more I think about how you have to be uh, in this part of the opera, you have to be a man who is like just completely over it, and like it just is like you know throwing what do you call throwing things at the wind? Like you know, he's he's just like throwing caution to the wind. Yeah, no, no, it's the opposite. Two like he's re- the wind? no, he's like. He has, he's without abandon, you know, and he's clearly an alcoholic at this point. Oh. And, you know, and this whole thing with Stella is ridiculous. It's not, it's not going to work out. It's clearly not going to work out, you know, but he is just so, I mean, you can hear the desperation in the sound. And I thought, I'm not going to, I'm not going to vote for you his own there, but I thought Domingo. You just made my argument. No, no, no. I don't, but I, no. I feel that Domingo still, uh, he sang that way, but he had, he still had the poise of an opera singer. You know, he had the poise of a hero. Uh, which maybe makes him a more of an elegant noble. <laughs> I like my drunks a little sloppier, Oliver, <laughs> yeah. and I, I think that that's what uh, Viazon had in his take on the part that uh, Plac- um, Placido didn't quite have was that sort of actually that that abandon, uh, despite a few sort of vocal inconsistencies. <laughs> yeah. So who's the winner? I think it's going to be Viazon because. Domingo seemed more drunk off adrenaline than yeah. actual alcohol. Yeah. Like he still had this immense control. Yeah. And that is not the case for Villazon. Like he was 
all over the place. Yeah. Like that man was <laughs> crunk. Yeah, it was like <laughs> me last week and the other time I, I Oh, I mean last podcast. Monday when you were supposed to be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who's holding Bia's own hair, that afro? <laughs> well, luckily for you, Oliver, we have two more rounds. It's all right. the best of three here. So, so uh, round, round two. two uh, this round is all about youth and simplicity. Uh, in the first official act of Hoffman after the prologue, we go back to uh, the time of the hero's apprenticeship and his first love, Olympia. Uh, Olympia represents an ideal, an unattainable perfection. And she has very little to say, <laughs> nor does she even eat, because she's actually an automaton or a, a droid. In the first act, Arya, <laughs> Hoffman has to convey you know, his virtue, his naivete, that's puppy love. And it's a more of a chaste, you know, noble, courtly desire uh, of someone much younger than Hoffman. It, it is of someone much younger that we heard that in the prologue, Hoffman, maybe, you know, 15 years before. Uh, this aria is has a very dreamlike quality. And there's an undulating horn, which provides most of the accompaniment so that there's no real groundedness. You don't hear the orchestra really filling out. So it does give this aria a lot of loftiness and it really gives a chance uh to the, for the singer to get into the text and to convey the text. Uh, so we have two non-native French speakers here, which is going to really... Dicey. Yes. <laughs> and who's going first? Uh, this time we'll start with Domingo from the studio recording, 1972. Okay, and then my boy Rolando is going to go second. Yes. All right, here we go. So to keep it fair, that was also uh, Viazone's studio recording when he was 34 under Michel Plasson. And uh, there are many, you know, moments in this opera for uh, Hoffmann. I mean, it's it's he's basically on stage the whole time. Um, but this round does put both of them at risk because it's clear that they're not native French speakers. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I'm nervous about what the judgment is going to be here. I will say that... Domingo did keep his poise. I felt like Domingo was much more uh, virtuous sounding and that Viazone 
uh, in the end, let out a little bit more of that angry, like Otello all of a sudden came to town, you know? Yeah, I think that for Viazon, there's a certain sort of carefree and casualness to that sound. Unrhythmic. It was a little bit, you know, I mean, it was some a would bit, call it unrhythmic, yeah, yeah. Uh, Oliver. Others yeah. would call it organic, <laughs> yeah. which seems to make sense with the text and this idea of love and the way that he's playing that. So I, I thought that was totally appropriate. Am I wrong, Giovanna? You know, uh, I'm a stickler for diction, and Domingo's diction was was just better. Oh, boy. But Viazon, Viazon did sound younger and more yeah. naive, but he's not drunk, so he should have better diction. So this one goes to Domingo. <laughs> All right. Well, this is very exciting okay. because we're tied at one apiece, yes, Oliver. This so is this is really going to be the deciding round. Set it up. So we're going to skip act two and jump all the way to uh, act three for this last round, which is probably the most difficult passage uh, in the entire opera for the tenor. A very high-lying passage. Uh, it's an Arioso moment that feels like it's plucked right out of a Bellini opera, but Bellini on Viagra. Uh, it's an aria of rapture, of fully engorged desire for Giulietta, who is actually uh, a courtesan. Uh, Hoffman has moved on from the virtuous love of a robot in Act 1 and the courtly love of a sick musician in Act 2, and he's moved on to hookers! <laughs> and we're in Venice, which was at the time the Vegas of Europe. Uh, so let's hear Odieu de Calivresse. Uh, which is all about rapture and about ready to go. I'm ready to go. You win diction. <laughs> and oh, who's, you win diction. Whose corner is going to go first on this? Uh, we will start with Via Zone, okay. a 2011 from the Bavarian State Opera, and then Domingo from 1981. They both are around 3940 when this, these were recorded. Hey! <laughs> 
put this in context for yeah. you that recording was from 2011 right uh via zone yeah via zone thank you uh so this is two years after he's had these problems and he's back on the road so for a guy who had been through all that business to sound like that that is the case that is the argument for why he should be the winner well i'm gonna persuade I, me oliver yeah. well i'm i'm gonna give george a little bit more to to deal with um good stuff for via zone that he clearly organized his breath way better than Domingo did. Like Domingo had much shorter phrases and needed to take breaths in the middle of phrases sometimes. Um, but Domingo... I would not be happy to have Oliver represent yeah. me at one of these. <laughs> no, no, no. But let me just let me finish. <laughs> this do you wait. want, you know, if you're Julieta, do you want this tenor on top of you who is about to eat you? I mean, like he was singing full on balls to the walls and it was scary. I mean, it was like, it was past passionate. It was you know, psychotic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And Domingo still was, you know, a poet. He still was, you know, a person, you know, he still was a lover and there was much more sensitivity. I'll give you that via zone, like blew it out of the water. Was that an expression? I'm so bad with expressions, you know? That is an expression. Yeah. Uh, And Domingo was compromised, you know, Domingo was having much more trouble with the tessitura, but he still managed to shape. If you look at the shape of the aria overall, he created much more shape. Whereas Viozone was just like, I'm going to do this to you right now. You get ready, you know, spread your legs. (laughs) Giovanna, it's over to you then to make the final call. You know, as I was listening, I I just, Viozone sounds so horny. (laughs) And Domingo sounds so engaged but he's like he's still kind of he's one of those guys who will think about himself first mm-hmm. before thinking about you and i i want some of that via zone you know it's nice to be ravaged every now and then <laughs> <laughs> so via zone it goes to you george wow. form an orderly cue listeners wow. uh i'm good <laughs> well can i just say before we leave the segment you can that if you guys weren't sitting here, I would be crying right now because this is one of the operas. I mean, I love it so much. And this particular, I don't know what it is about this aria. But I think it's combination of sexual aggression and just beautiful melody that really touches me. Is that really strange? You know? No, it's but, not that strange. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I, I will say though, <laughs> you made a case for Viazo this entire time. <laughs> so Domingo got shafted from square one. <laughs> Literally. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. 
Let's go inside the huddle. Coming up now is the interview that Oliver and I conducted with Emily Bersam. She has such a formal word because, God, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. And we were uh, at the Chicago Public Library in the rehearsal rooms, and there was pianos being tuned on either side of us, you know? It feels very yeah. sort of real and live, yeah. like you're back. like we were in a conservatory or something like that. Yeah. Yes. We, let's just say we were at the rehearsal room of COT. That's marvelous. Really yeah. Enjoy. <laughs> Emily Burson, welcome. Thank you so much for, for coming and talking for to Oliver. Come on, yeah. Yourself. Uh, you really have a fantastic headshot. On this show, we tend to like <laughs> talk about people's headshots, and your headshot is just gorgeous. Thank you very Who much. Who's the photographer? Kristen Hoberman. Okay, it's she was in New York. York. Okay, yeah. Okay. And your yeah. hair is quite big. Yeah, yeah I got big hair. Shot. You have big hair, which made sense for the production of Johnny Skiki that we saw you in. We were all there. Oliver, myself, Giovanna Jacques, our third co-host, we were awesome. all there on Saturday night. I was also there. Oh, that, that's a good thing. <laughs> I was ready. You were singing Loretta. <laughs> um, but even, uh, I guess, after the show, it was the Super Bowl. So that was uh, yeah. Sunday. That was on Sunday, and Oot. I don't. I didn't really watch much Super Bowl. I watched the um, national anthem, and then I watched the halftime show. Uh, we <laughs> had Lady funny. Gaga singing the national anthem, and I was like, "What is going on?" And it was so good. And like, I thought, okay, for sure she's gonna try to belt this note, and it's gonna be a disaster. But she didn't. Yeah. She went into head voice. She mixed it, and then she added ornaments, and like they were yes. very tasteful. Yes. And she held out like the last note like unnecessarily, but it was great, you know. And it was sort of like I don't want to that Renee Fleming did a bad job or that Joyce Dion did a bad job mm -hmm. but they both did not take any risks they did yes. very safe versions very clean and beautiful but it wasn't exciting the way I wanted it to be exciting, you know? And Lady Gaga's was exciting, you know? It definitely touched me, too. Yeah. And I'm not usually touched by a national yeah. anthem. Yeah. Like, it kind of, you could tell she was singing from her heart. I, I really did. And she, she's a great performer. And yeah, she yeah, knows yeah. how to use her body. Like, and like, she her, cut, that, her yeah. cut off at the end was like parting the red sea. <laughs> yeah, like, I saw it that. was so awesome. <laughs> now and, I need to watch it because I didn't watch a minute of the soup. Oh, this is wow. upper box score. Come I know, on. How <laughs> is that? I, did, I, had, I had no skin in the game. As yeah. They say no, me neither. But so, yeah, but you did watch the game. I watched the game, and I just wanted the underdogs to win, which they did. Yeah. Oh, really? They're the underdogs? The oh, I had no idea who was in it. I just assumed that Peyton Manning is like, he's like second to Tom Brady, so that of course he's going to win. But he's old. He's quite yeah. old. Yeah. Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> but then, of course, I, I tuned out for a while and recorded a podcast and then uh, came back to the halftime show to see uh, Beyonce and uh, uh, what's his name? The black guy. Bruno Mars. <laughs> yeah. He's Filipino or something like that, right? Like He's yeah, like, he's yeah. black, black Pino or I, I read, he's something good that I should like. And Dudamel yeah. have a little appearance. That was appearance. so strange, the Dudamel yeah. thing, because you know I heard all about them being there, but being involved, there was yeah. no way that they were watching him and there was no way that you could even hear what those string players were doing it they was just kind being of this youth orchestra yeah the, right. the the los angeles youth orchestra it's yeah. like the sistema of america how could they watch him they're in a stadium of like 80,000 yeah. people who are all like, it was, they were just up they were just up there for a show and all their instruments were like painted like yeah they were jumping color. up and down and i was skeptical as if they yeah. were even playing but yeah. i do think that they were playing i yeah. mean young people they can jump and yeah. play and do anything you but know? then at the, the last tableau <laughs> was all the artists coming together for the final you know Shot was, and, was... and Beyonce's hair was blowing so big <laughs> that it was completely covering Gustavo Dudamel. <laughs> you gotta have big hair, man. Yeah. You gotta have big hair. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've learned this. So, yeah, right. Emily, when you're not watching the Super Bowl and when you're not Which a is every salon day, so, making yeah. your hair, you're <laughs> 
Uh, you finished the program uh, at Lyric Opera of Chicago. It's almost two years ago. Yeah, now, almost two years right? ago. Time flies. Um, I mean, what, what has been going on in your life professionally since then? Just to kind of bring our listeners up to speed and put it all in context. Um, I was based out of Chicago my first year, and that was good for me to kind of keep with my coaches and my kind of family and support system musically, um, and my family. Um, uh, my parents and my they're, sister. Everyone's from Chicago? Um, they're, my sister's in Chicago and my parents are in Wisconsin, okay. so it's like Midwest. Um, and so I did, you know, my first Layla and Pearl Fishers in Miami. I think that was my first big gig out. And then um, I went to Boston to do a Bohem and another Bohem in Madison. So, and then a couple gigs in Europe uh, with Sir Andrew Davis from my connection with him at the Lyric. Fantastic. So having, you know, my my debut in Norway in Bergen with the, uh, the Philharmonic there and then in Edinburgh with the festival. Um, in Bergen I did this Elgar piece called right. St. Olaf and we recorded it and then in Edinburgh I did uh, Rick's Progress uh, a concert oh, version of Rick's oh. Progress even um, still but with such a great cast and doing my first Andrew Love in that setting yeah. was so it was a little bit of pressure but it was you know a good kind of pressure because you really I really prepared it in a, in a very um, interesting way just thinking of the concert and we semi-staged it so it was um, really focused I think on the music and where where the drama comes from the music um, and then yeah so I've, I've, I've been having a good um, mix of concert and operatic work and you got one recording under your belt I got one recording yeah. under my belt and, and maybe one coming up yeah I was going to ask do you have any future recording plans yeah I I mean I it's with the BBC Symphony uh-huh. and it's it's an, another kind of piece that is um, a little more obscure is it a choral? British composer it's choral, choral and um, or, orchestral yeah, yeah. So, yeah so I feel like the UK uh, <clears throat> or where they're still making recordings and they st- where they still care yeah recording, Chandos you know? is, yeah. is such a great label I but, love those uh, guys but the US is somehow like I, don't, I feel like I have a lot of friends who are making recordings with small labels and whatnot and I see them publicizing it on Facebook and yeah. like, trying to sell them at their concerts stuff like that and it's like people just don't want to buy recordings anymore yeah. so you have to be with a label that can get you onto you know Spotify or iTunes streaming or something like that yeah. and that's how these things are being distributed now and that's so sad for me it's a completely different conversation than why we brought you in here for. Exactly, Because yeah. I love recordings as you know you've been to my house, you know. Yes, like, yes, I'm yes. crazy about recordings. I love touching them. I love opening the plastic <laughs> oh, yeah, and like, reading exactly. the book, you know. And we're so losing that. experience, yeah. Yeah. And then more recently, of course, you did the double bill with Chicago Opera Theater. You're currently yes. doing it. Currently yes. doing well, it, Well, right? not this moment, yeah. but <laughs> later on this We're week. on stage. <laughs> we're actually theater, on right? stage. Yeah. Should, the piano tuning <laughs> you hear the background of this recording is the orchestra. Uh, no, there is another show on Sunday night and everybody should go see that. I mean, take us through the process of that a little bit? Well, um, I found out it was in English, and so that was uh, the first thing I, I knew. I know about Johnny Skiki. I've done Nella before. Okay. And but you haven't sung Loretta. But I've never sung okay. Loretta. So as a new role, I was, you know, it's, it's always, I always would love to sing it in the original language. Sure. But at the same time, looking at it in English, I mean, I can see some some different um, aspects that could, could help uh, change it in good ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I learned it. I worked with Andreas as far as the aria. We changed the words a lot mm-hmm. to try to figure out a way to have the same feeling of her threatening to, you know, buy the rings and to throw herself off the bridge and, 
you know, instead of, I think the translation that I got at first was, was um, you know, he's so beautiful and I love him so much and I love him so much and I love him so much. Yeah. I'm begging you. You know, and I we wanted some more specific uh, textual... Um, yeah, to keep the drama going. It's, to keep yeah. the drama and yeah. to, to, to let people know that she is actually threatening something. Yeah. She's not just like a girl in love. Because I think that's the thing, like in Italian, you hear this aria and it stops time. Like the opera is filled with so much action. Yes. And it literally stops time in a great way yes. for this beautiful lyrical moment. But if you understand Italian, it actually is a hilarious aria. Yeah. It's this little girl threatening her father. And you know? I've sung the aria so many times, obviously. Yeah. It's so famous. Um, uh, and I do it as encores with orchestras or whatever. Sure. It's a great and sometimes I do actually do it really comedic. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I, I push the envelope. And a lot of people just sing it kind of more straight and beautiful. Yeah. Um, but I, I've done it pretty comedic, you know? Yeah, I think the threat is actually very real. And I've, you know, I've done the show yeah. a couple times as a director. And to mm-hmm. me, like, that aria really is about, it is about this little girl, but her growing up and her saying to her father, you know, she says, Babbo Pietà in the yeah. original Italian, which yeah. I've always taken that Pietà to not, to mean not pity me, me. Loretta, yeah. but it's like, I pity you because you are having to experience what it's like when I'm no longer daddy's little girl. Ooh, and like, yeah. I'm grown up, and if I don't marry this guy, there's going to be disastrous consequences. And it's not an empty threat. It's like yeah. very, very real. Well, here's yeah. something just to bring it full circle to what we're talking about this whole week. Um, the idea that in Italy, and probably in lots of parts of Europe, uh, and maybe even in the United States in the, you know, in the earlier part of the 20th century, uh, you did not leave home unless you got married. Yeah. So getting married was actually separating from your family because you stayed with your parents until, and you probably even live with your parents when you're married. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But there's like the housing is not so widely available. People don't just get apartments when they're 20s, you know. And like, yeah. So yeah, getting married was actually leaving home. And I think maybe Italy in the 60s. I'm not an expert. You are more of the 60s. <laughs> oh, expert. really? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, to I this day, yeah, to this day, like you know. <laughs> That's what people do in Italy. Yeah. It's like, you, there's not like, you know, this society where everybody's like gets, you know, Ikea furniture and, and lives and, you know, shares a studio or something like that, you know. And that yeah. 60s connection is present in the the production and in the concept, yes. right? Um, yes. For those of you who are going to go see the show, uh, be prepared that specifically Johnny Skiki has been reset into the, the 1960s era. Is it any more specific than that? Is there like a specific year, Emily, that Andreas Midasek, the director, placed it? No. Um, he just wanted the 60s vibe, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And um, so you kind of see the costumes. I, I, you know, some of the characters are more almost 1970s, like the hippie vibe, and some of, some are more mod, like go-go boots. Mm-hmm. So I think you could place it however. however and what's your understanding of that choice? As we spoke about earlier on this podcast, I had some questions about yeah. that. Uh, what was your understanding from Andreas and from the production team, I, I mean, as the designer, he was also the production team, <laughs> yeah. uh, in terms of sort of like the reasoning behind that? You know, Lauretta is not in a lot of the scenes, so I missed a lot of those conversations. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of gathered a lot on my own. Yeah. And what I think of it is it's a it's a time of extravagance and of color and um, the fact that the topic is about money and property and inheritance and all this. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's, you know, this Austin Powers vibe of 
ah, you know, that's Randy, baby, or however he talks, <laughs> you know. It's it's that opulent, extravagant feeling. So I think it's it's just a choice of um, setting it in a in a feeling, in a in a mindset more than more than a very specific. Well, I, time. I think that when you choose something like that that especially the Austin Powers thing does come to mind yeah you choose something that's so stylized yeah. then stylized movement you accept easier yes. and like if, if if it's set in a completely natural environment it's an environment we're comfortable seeing on stage like if we're going to see a straight player or something like that mm. then when you see stylized movement it's like what is that why does that have to do with it but but when it's we're already taking you out of your comfort zone yes then you're willing to accept much more which is why I was actually okay with it and there was like lots of sight gags that I think wouldn't be funny if exactly. it was less chaotic you know yeah some of those 1960s movies like when when Rinuccio and I come up from the bed yeah. behind the bed and we kind of peek out to yeah. see if anyone's out there I mean yeah. that's so like sitcom yeah exactly it feels like a sitcom yeah, it feels like Brady Bunch all of a sudden but like, yeah it doesn't so, seem so weird because yeah. we have pinks and reds and blues on yeah. and um, you can focus more in on our love instead of focusing on those things it's almost it almost takes it away you said Emily that you've done another project Production that was also set in the 1960s. Yes, I, it was a La Boheme in, at Boston Lyric okay. just this last fall. What was, if you can remember, the rationale yeah. behind that as well? It was a lot more specifically uh, revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1968 um, in Paris, where this new mm-hmm. was it called the New Wave? Mm-hmm. Uh, young people. It was only a few months long. There was you know protests, and they they had this idea in their their minds that um, the world can be better and that we can all work together and uh, kind of socialist ideas. Um, so there was a lot of that. Um, a lot of my friends who came was like, wow, that, that was a socialist production. Yeah. Like, uh, and But then how I liked it, it was this um, passion of young people mm-hmm. and that everyone can relate to that. Uh, when you're 80, you can remember back to when you were 19 and you had these dreams of being an astronaut or dreams of being something. And you either it happened or it didn't or you tried to go towards it and you went a different path but you can always remember that time in your life and um, so I think that's what connected it for me and that's what made me cry when when Mimi was dying you know yeah. and that's you know it's like a it's like a fire that was so strong and then all of a sudden goes out because huh. it was so over so quickly in 1968 it you know the president was really scared and then all of a sudden it was over so. so you've had some, you've done some work at Lyric Opera. Yeah. Uh, you were actually in the Capriccio. Yeah. Uh, that was a very and, stylized and, period. And then you were <laughs> you were in Chicago Theater's um, double bill from a couple years ago, the clever one. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. And Emperor of Atlantis yeah. double bill, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm just trying to get a feel for the types of productions you've done yeah. and like the types of directors that l- like you because of your sp- particular skills. And mm-hmm. if you've had maybe more experience contrasting for us um, what's it like to be in a very traditional production yeah. and what it's like to be in a modern production and what maybe has worked but has you know, to be specific, you know? Yeah. But like you know like what you love about certain aspects of doing an update and what maybe holds you back when you are in a very traditional production I I think I'm I'm more used to doing traditional productions mm-hmm. because I came from the lyric yes. and I was in Electra and Boris Gudinov and Capriccio and Clemenza was a big one for me and it forced me to um, learn to be stylized in the period but then always focus in on the text so when I was singing Servilia, I would sing it the best when I would just think about what is she saying mm-hmm. instead of how does she look and yeah. how does she, you know, 
you know, what is she saying in relation to everyone else on stage? And it's so, an opera seria, and so it's, there's no real subtext. Like, it's what yeah. you're saying is, like, what you're thinking, you know? And so the challenge that comes with uh, productions that are kind of a little more out there as far as taking it out of where it was originally written mm -hmm. um, is that if we're saying adio to Florence, mm -hmm. but we're in Chicago, yeah, you know, and supposedly this is set in America in the 1960s, or it could be oh, set it is? In, I mean, I don't know, in, in, in Italy in the 1960s. Okay. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> it's hard because yeah. that kind of fills your brain. Yeah. And I always, even last night or on opening night, I was just saying, sing the text, sing the text, mm -hmm. sing the text. Mm -hmm. You know, and so that's what I always Emily, need to I mean, get back Scott, to. You could do far worse, I think, as a singer than that is your moment of preparation before. It's just being like, just sing the text. Honestly, and not mm -hmm. fakely. Yeah, that's exactly. what I hear in a lot of singers. And... Uh, self-awareness and self self-growth as a character I think is what people want to see because it's then it's coming straight from your heart I mean parts of Emily is in that character and I think. you're also honoring the composer more when you're focusing on this because that's what he had to do when he was, he was writing, writing it, it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean the music comes out because it's yeah. so overwhelmingly I mean beautiful the the score is just brilliant in my opinion conservatories and music programs are trying to ask you to like teach yeah and so what are some of the things that you've been you know realizing that you can teach yeah. young artists well artists you know when yeah I, I'm definitely in a period in my career where I'm like trying things out and pushing the boundaries I'm I'm doing a role for the second time I'm doing a role for the first time so I'm not doing it for the hundredth time mm -hmm. right and I think that's a that's I think valuable to young singers because they're taking on roles for the first time but in a university setting and they can uh, relate to me almost easier than if you know someone really famous like Joyce Donato or Renee Fleming would do a master class with them um, because I've only done it once or twice and I can give them just a little insight or um, insight on what to be aware of when looking at it for the first time because um, and and to encourage them that this is a time of apprenticeship and this is a time to just uh, learn the notes and do the work and to and to say that it continues through your whole life and to that that I'm still working and I'm still pushing the boundaries and and so you're in this position of being able to contribute let's say to the next generation yeah. of opera singers and so what, what other things are you saying to them as as they go out mm -hmm. you know as they finish their training because you're teaching undergrads and graduates yeah I've done master classes with mm -hmm. mostly undergrad like I went back to Lawrence Conservatory right. where I went and well, I've been to Madison yeah okay. I went to mm -hmm. Madison um, I talk to young people um, whenever I'm at an opera company. So you have a chance to fix some of the big problems with singers <laughs> today. So, like, what are the problems? And yeah, or, well, what here, are the let problems? Make, maybe the second person, like, what were things that you had no idea you need to be prepared for? I mean, Lyric Opera, obviously, <laughs> is one of the best finishing schools you can apply to or you can be a part of this yeah. Ryan Center. But what were some of the things, like, when you were out in the real world, even within the Ryan Center, it's like, oh, wow, I never even thought that I'd have to work on that, you know? And, yeah. And, well, I think just my mind I had to work on of, of um, not comparing myself to other people but comparing myself in a healthy way mm -hmm. um, knowing where I fit and and working from there instead of going in blindly with my blinders on you know um, so that's a way of being competitive and um, to be self-aware knowing what where you fit 
Well, you're a really good musician, so maybe this doesn't apply to you. <laughs> but was there something, even preparation-wise, that is like you had no idea? Like for me, I haven't been sung that many opera roles, but the mm -hmm. first time I went into uh, to sing a role, it was a Handel opera. Yeah. And I had prepared the recits by myself. I had not coached them. Yeah. And I had not worked with my scene partner. And so I yeah. thought I knew them. And then I get into this rehearsal, the table read, and it was a disaster. Oh, and yeah. And I never, I mean, I will never go into that type of rehearsal without really working on and having somebody sing the other lines or, or, you know, so I feel the rhythm of the thing, you know. Like, that was something that really surprised me at how unprepared I actually was, you know. I think um, musically, I was I was always, I would kind of um, think I wasn't prepared and then I would get there and I would be prepared. So that was great. But the, 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 the acting part of it, I didn't do enough preparation. I didn't think about the character in, in ways of how do they move, mm -hmm. in ways of, like, what is their background, what is their self-esteem? Mm -hmm. Those kind of things. Like, they teach us in school, like, I'm 16 years old, I mm -hmm. have a mother, and my <laughs> father's dead. Yeah. You know, those kinds of things. But, like, how do they tick? Yeah. And that takes a lot of confidence of how, to, how does Emily tick, first of all. And that's oh, yeah, why I try to exactly just, so. like, say, get to know yourself. Mm -hmm. Then get to know the character and know your music. You know, I mean, it's not that easy. But so, do you these feel like that, that Lawrence about. and Ryan Center? Where'd you do your master's degree? Do you have a master's? Degree? Uh, yeah, at Madison, did, UW Madison. Did yeah. do any of those places give you the equipment that you needed to, you know, work on those things? They try. Yeah, I think there a lot of universities are really trying and. Um, I have to say, when I went through those universities, I gave some feedback, and I'm not the kind of person that doesn't that that withholds feedback. Mm -hmm. So I and I did that for the Ryan Opera Center, and I did that for my mm -hmm. masters. I did that when I was in Vienna studying abroad, mm -hmm. and and I think that they've really changed things as far as preparing people in languages, in in um, going to performances. Because I, I wanted to go to a university that was like um, kind of closed off so I could really focus on my, my craft, mm -hmm. but it really stunk that I didn't really go to a lyric production until I went with my grandpa, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I didn't really see what the world-class singing was live as much as I could have. As much as I was paying for that, you know. So you singers who are listening, take an acting class. Get some stage <laughs> experience. Just do a community show. Like, do a straight play yeah, even, you yeah, know. Yeah. Just, like, figure out how to be on stage. Because that's a lot. Of, I think a lot of people, you know, get their first role and they've never been on stage before. Improv they, class. Yeah. Ooh, that they don't was... even know what, like, stage right is or downstage or whatever, you know. Like, they're just yeah. getting that level of comfortable and they have to work on a character, you know, on top of that. You know? Yeah. It's incredible. Certainly, again, as a director, I mean, you see it be because people come into the rehearsal room and they are very musically prepared but they haven't thought remotely beyond that mm -hmm. at all and it slows the process down <laughs> you don't know basic stagecraft and you're constantly having to go over that when they haven't done the work on the text it comes yeah. back to what you said earlier emily yeah no, i mean i, I just I, like sing the text i give singers a pass because most of them especially well, you when they're undergrads like they are this they have just entered into becoming a musician a lot of them some of them might have played the piano or whatever when yeah. they were kids but a lot of people you know get an undergraduate program and they have never studied music before, you know, and they're learning theory for the first time. They're learning, you know, sight reading. They're learning all these things. Yeah. And so it's a lot. Uh, 
you, you get a violinist the same age and they've been playing since they've been five years old, you know? But a singer might have had like one or two years of lessons before they enter into conservatory. But every so. singer is different. And that's why I promote to to figure out what you do well. So in, when I was there, I would I would feel these things with certain musical moments. Like if, if I got to hold out an A and the orchestra was stretching some into another harmonic world or whatever, or, you know, why is that powerful to me? And then that would inform the character. So I always went from the music to the character. Maybe other people, they don't connect so much to the music. They just make sure they know the notes and the dynamics and blah, blah, blah. But they do a lot in acting and figuring out that, that type of character and then put it into the music. However you work know how you work mm-hmm. and and do that process and and so i mean that's what you develop so start in, from in your apprenticeship strength. is yeah mm-hmm. figure out what you connect to mm-hmm. what is going to move other people you know when I, when i sing concerts it moves people even if i'm not thinking about it because the music is so powerful right but then wh- how can i take that one step further to yeah. to bring it into opera you know just made me think of Montserrat Caballet like yeah. one of her big tricks she does is these uh, floated high notes and like She's this huge singer in many ways. She's huge, yeah. you know. But that's the one thing she does that it's so special. And she figures out a way to do it in every show. And then it also informs how she presents that character dramatically. You know, yeah. it's like it's the one thing that we expect from her. You know, yeah. The music informs the character. Yeah. And the character also informs the music. It can become a circle. Yeah. I think if you if you figure out how to how to work it. Mm-hmm. Emily Burson, thank you so much for <laughs> joining you. us on the podcast. Good call, bad call. On Opera Box Score. That's our podcast for this week. We're going to wrap it up with Good Call, Bad Call, which is when we talk about something great or something lousy that has happened in the world of opera recently. Oliver Camacho, over to you. I have a double good call, no bad call. Um, I saw the Floating Opera Company production of Don Giovanni, mm-hmm. and it could actually fall into some bad call category, but the overall <laughs> feeling I had of was... was Congratulations to them for, you know, being in a weird space and getting an orchestra and buying lights. And they did everything they possibly could to make it a show. And sometimes these micro-opera companies forget one of those elements and then you feel like you're watching an amateur show. It has come and gone at this point. Yeah. And Whitney Morrison was a revelation. A revelation. She was the soprano singer Donna Anna. And I promise you, you will hear more about this singer, Whitney Morrison. My other good call is uh, you can stream on pbs.org the recent Richard Tucker gala. And you must find the duet that Jamie Barden and Christine Gerke sing from La Gioconda's Eonatem. Eonatema, anate un anatema. There you go. Uh, it's this is this is balls to the wall singing the girl version. So I guess that's boobs to the wall. I don't know. Definitely so, boobs to the wall. Yeah, it's amazing. This is this girl. is what we're missing in opera is this type of amazing, full on, full throated, but beautiful singing. My good call for the week is coming up. It's happening as we recorded the show, actually. Lyric Op of Chicago has opened its most recent production of Rosenkavalier, The Rose Bearer by Richard Strauss. I love this opera. The music is so fantastic. I cannot wait to see it. My dad is coming into town next month, and here I'm going to go on one of our father-son opera dates to see it. I'm just so thrilled to be able to hear this music with an orchestra, even if the production itself is a little dusty for my abstract tastes. Not set in the 60s, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) 
My good call is also kind of a bad call. Uh, The good call is Lady Gaga last night at the Super Bowl sang the national anthem and rocked it. The bad call is that everyone is so impressed that Lady Gaga rocked the national anthem (laughs) last night. And since when did we stop expecting the singers to actually sing well? She was amazing. I thought she she was very good. Some very recent famous people. I would agree with you. I would agree with you. That's it for our podcast. Our in-show announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. The general manager of WNUR is Maddie Higgins. Our program director is Bill Scholney. And our theme song, Vodka Inferno, is by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. However you listen to our podcast, please let us know what you think. Be sure to leave comments, reviews, and stars. Good or bad, we and others want to hear about it. You can also contact us via email, Twitter, and Facebook, operaboxscore at gmail.com, at operaboxscore on Twitter, operaboxscore on the Book of Face. We're back live in studio on Monday, February 15 at 9 p.m. Central on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago and WNUR.org slash pop-up. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to keep the conversation about opera going, whatever the weather. Javana, what's in the opera crystal ball this week? Mm, I have a feeling that Rosen Cavalier will not sell out. It's <laughs> <That's> a long <laughs> one. <laughs> George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR.